may be around the world. And thank you for your company on truth2u.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. Shalom, Mirachano. It's so good again to be here with you. Wonderful to have you back, my friend. Hey, listen, you've got a gig coming up. I saw something on Facebook about uh, a lecture that you're giving soon. What's going on? <laughs> Maybe look at the Facebook page and see. <laughs> Hang on a second. Let me go to the Facebook page. I think I'm starting up our six-week uh, survival seminar, which is not really a news item because we do it two or three times a year for the past 23 years. So people who are in the area of, of Toronto, right, can they need to register. Is that right? It's, I think it's free, but they need to register. We, we appreciate that. So uh, we will have enough seats. <laughs> well, let's put out the seats. Okay. So the, the details are on, let me see, I, they're also on your page. Oh, here, here it is. Look, I've got the little flyer here. It says, acquire the knowledge that is kryptonite to missionaries at the Counter Missionary Survival Seminar with Rabbi Michael Skoback. That's you. Isn't that corny? <laughs> no, I think it looks great. There's a whole Superman theme to it. I think it's wonderful. I'm going to put a link to that on this post. That's coming up soon on the 27th of January to the 3rd of March. Wow. wow. Really? It goes for... That must be pretty comprehensive. Well, actually, it's only one half because we have a part two, which is another six weeks. Aye, aye, aye. All right. Anyway, so people in the area, I'll put a link for that. Now, speaking of being comprehensive... We are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. And we have cause for celebration, Michael, because according to the original list of 365, we've passed the halfway mark. Really? We have. Wow. So I guess according to the new Revised Standard list, we must be way past the halfway mark. We must be flying ahead. Of course, the new uh, the new Revised Standard version supplied by Carmen at therefinersfire.org. Thank you for that, Carmen. When uh, just for people who you know have only just started listening, when we started this uh, 365, this list of 365, uh, it caused Carmen to of the RefinersFire.org to go back and revise that list, which appeared on her website, and she decided, you know what, there is a lot of double ups, and there's a lot of things that really don't uh, shouldn't the things that don't belong there anyway, and she. Uh, well, I guess she refined it. There you go. She put it through the refiner's fire, and she ended up with, uh, I think, was it 302? She, she knocked out about 63 of them. Anyway, what we're doing is we're going through her list now just to sort of streamline things a little bit. But according to the list of 365, we have passed the halfway mark. Now, before we get there, we got some comments. Are you ready? I'm all ears. Okay. <laughs> and... <laughs> And good day to everybody who left a comment. We've got some great comments on the last program. Of course, the last program was about... What was the last program about? Mainly Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, that's right. And uh, so thank you to everybody who left comments. Larry left a comment. G'day, Larry. Quick off the mark here, the first comment. He said, our creator is the God of Israel. He told us that he would send one we must obey. He sent him in the person of Yeshua. The more time you spend trying to convince others that this is not the case, fighting the will of God, the more time you will continue to waste. All people will come to see that Yeshua is the Messiah told of to us by Moshe and promised to us by God. The Torah, the prophets and the writings tell us who Messiah will be. The Gospels show us who he is, Yeshua. Ask God to show you who the Messiah is with an open heart, and he will. I am happy to take him up on his challenge, which I actually have done. I have prayed uh, many times to ha have God give me some clarity of understanding of the scriptures, 
Um, and I don't think that was a prayer that was that uh, was wasted and that it went to void. I think that my sense is that I, I have a pretty good understanding, I believe, of what the scriptures do say about the Messiah. I don't see it pointing to Yeshua. And I guess everyone's going to have to judge for themselves. But do we, do we really need, um, I mean, we should pray for, for, for guidance to God, no doubt. But really, the necessary information is before us in written form. I mean, isn't that our first port of call? <clears throat> yes, and, but I think the, the point is that what's so fascinating is that here we have uh, the information everyone has in front of them, but it's so fascinating that people seem to understand it differently. So it's the same data, and yet people are able to walk away with very, very different conclusions. And I, oh, think, that's, that's, true, I think that's why we pray, because we want to pray for clarity, because it's so easy for our own agenda and our own emotional uh, investments to cloud the clarity of understanding. So one of the first prayers, actually, the Jews say we have a uh, – the formal Jewish prayer service has 19 blessings. And the first request, actually, the first request we make is for God to give us uh, clarity of understanding and uh, discernment and mm-hmm. clear knowledge. And I think that unless we do have that ability, which you know never is, we never get it all by ourselves. Every breath we take comes from the Almighty, mm-hmm. and the fact that we can think comes from the Almighty. I think God wants us to pray for His assistance. Um, our, our own efforts can only take us so far. And I think that, um, you know, since the information is there for everyone to read, the only question is, are we really understanding it properly? And I think that the more we pray for clarity of understanding, I think the more we'll have consensus rather than disagreement. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, we, got a, we also got a, a comment from Carmen. G'day, Carmen. Okay. Wonderful that she's listening. And she wrote and she said, we are certainly in the end times as outlined in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Many simply cannot understand that the Bible, and she's got in brackets, both testaments, and that is, that is Carmen's Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Tanakh and the New Testament, are one complete entity, she says, an echad. From start to finish, Yeshua warned us that these things would happen. And Jono's desire to, quote, debunk Yeshua and the entire New Testament is ample proof. This will never be settled until Yeshua returns. And this time he won't be coming as a baby, she said, with an exclamation mark on the end. She also goes on to quote Matthew chapter 24. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you mean she, the whole chapter she... Well, pretty much from from uh, chapter twenty four, from three to fourteen, which you know has a fairly eschatological theme all the way through, and uh, I guess you know when I read that, I thought you know we have a we have a prophecy as well, and that prophecy is in uh, Jeremiah chapter sixteen, verse nineteen and on, which says, "O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the nations shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies." Worthlessness and unprofitable things will a, man, will a man make gods for himself which are not gods. Mm. Yes, and what's interesting is that um, you know th- this big question mark over history. You know, everyone's sort of looking forward to see what's going to happen and how is history going to resolve itself. Um, you know, the rabbis have a saying: "Ein simcha ella kahatoras asfekos." There's no joy in this world greater than the resolution of questions and doubts. And so you have this 2,000-year-old dispute between the followers of Jesus and those uh, who have not accepted his claims. 
And, you know, Christians insist that when, you know, history is brought to its conclusion, it'll be clear that Jesus was the Messiah, and uh, others disagree. And what I find interesting is that not just the passage you quoted in Jeremiah, but it's almost a recurring theme in Scripture that we're told at the end of history, it's not that the Jewish people are going to admit to the rest of the world that they were right and we were wrong. The, the Scriptures repeat several times that at the end of history, it's the world that's going to come to the Jewish people and say, you know, we're now realizing that you were right and we were wrong. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that one of the names uh, that comes up in the Bible uh, is my name, actually, Isaac. My Hebrew name is Yitzchak, and mm -hmm. it means he will laugh. He will, it's almost like it's saying that, you know, the, the people of Israel are going to get to get the last, last laugh in the sense mm -hmm. that um, I think also in Proverbs it speaks about that she will laugh at the last day. And, uh, you know, I, I guess people can make their claims and insist that uh, things will turn out right for them. But it, you never find in the scriptures the prediction that at the end of days, it'll be Israel that has to admit to the rest of the world that uh, they were right and Israel was wrong. Mm. Um, so I take comfort in that. Mm. And I take comfort in the fact that I'm uh, getting every day um, one or two emails or Facebook messages from people who are um, telling me that they've been in the church for their whole life. And through very serious and prayerful study, they're coming to realize that they've made this error. And to me, it's it's humbling and it's all it's it's mind blowing that these prophecies uh, about the end times, where it speaks about the world coming to the Jewish people and admitting that they need to follow the teachings of the Torah, mm. um, is coming true in our lifetime, and we're not seeing. Uh, you know, yeshiva students in Israel, you know, calling up their local parish priest and saying, look, I want to start coming to church on Sunday. Mm. We're seeing the exact opposite <laughs> is taking place. It's quite incredible that this has been a, a movement now over the past number of years where uh, a tidal wave, really, of people who were seriously in the church, deeply in the church, are now coming to realize the error of their uh, beliefs, and mm. they're returning to the God of uh, Israel, they're returning to the Torah, um, they're coming to realize that so much of what they were taught in the church is simply not true. Um, so I, I'll, I'll hold hands with Carmen on this idea that the end times is uh, upon us, mm, and I think that uh, she might be in for a little bit of a surprise. And may that day come soon. Now, we are, uh, as I said, we're, we're past the halfway mark on the list of 365. We're uh, kicking off on, on that list from, I think it's 188. But we are using the new revised standard version supplied by Carmen from the, refin the org. So thank you for that, Carmen. And the number there, I do believe we're kicking off from 100, 134. At 134, wow. yeah. In this yep. list, we're not yet halfway there because halfway would be 151. No, I'm trying to be. <laughs> I'm trying to be positive. I'm being optimistic. <laughs> okay, this is what it says: Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. 
corresponding verse according to the list is Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And that says, uh, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, the, uh, the connection or the, uh, the, the prophecy fulfilled according to the list is Messiah would have the key of David. Now, this is a funny one, because if we read in the context, we discover something interesting. What are your thoughts, Michael? Well, that's the magic words. Uh, if we read this in context, um, you know, it's very easy to parachute down into the middle of chapter 22 and pluck this one verse out and spin it in the way that this list spins it. But um, all you need to do is just go back uh, several verses to see this is not a messianic prophecy. It's really speaking about something that took place during uh, approximately the 8th century BCE, where in the court of Hezekiah, in Chizkiyahu's court, there was a treacherous official whose name was Shevna. Sometimes in English it's written as Shevna. Mm. And uh, he was sort of a difficult person. He was... Uh, really seeking to undermine the, the the government, really, and to get people to go over to the side of the enemy. Um, so this passage here in chapter twenty-two speaks about him being him, him losing his place of prominence. The Shevna basically uh, is going to be kicked out from his place in the government to be replaced by someone named Eliakim ben Chilkiyahu. That's in verse twenty. And when it speaks about who is going to be given this key of David, it's very clear in the passage that it's not speaking about some future messianic figure who's going to come. It's speaking about this very el Yakim ben Chilkiyahu. Um, so the context here really resolves everything. And mm. it reminded me really of what happens, for example, uh, what many Christians do with Isaiah chapter 14. They sort of plop themselves down in the middle of the chapter, and they insist that it's a passage about Satan, Satan. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you just go back and you read from the beginning of chapter 14 uh, in Isaiah, I think verse 4 there tells you that it's speaking, it's a parable about the king of Babylon. So uh, it's very easy when you ignore the context to insert uh, really wherever you feel like inserting. Um, so here... Um, you know, it's only by ignoring the, the very context, both thematically and just in terms of the actual uh, passage. It spells out exactly who it's referring to in verse 20. Mm -hmm. um, can you come up with this erroneous twist or, or interpretation? Mm. Um, what it means, probably, it's not very clear what it means to have this key of David. Um, uh, some people understand it to mean an actual key. Um, possibly that he'll be given the key to unlock the holy temple, to lock it up and to unlock it. Those are the people who want to understand this passage a little bit more concretely. Other people understand that, especially in terms of the Hebrew terms of opening and closing, uh, really more like uh, resolving and, and uh, resolving questions, that he mm -hmm. will be considered as the leading uh, legal authority of the generation. He'll be given certain authority. Um, and that's pretty clear when you look at the succeeding verses, the following verses. It does speak about this person uh, as having this special authority. Um, so 
it really it makes it very clear when we study the passage who it is talking about. It's not exactly clear what it means to have this key. And the third pr- thing I'd like to just point out is that whatever it means, uh, there's no proof that this had any application to Jesus, meaning it would simply be an assertion of the New Testament that Jesus had this key of David. Um, but there certainly isn't any... Uh, empirical evidence or reason to assume that that's the case. Meaning that mm. again, it, it's we've seen this so many times now. It it only works if you accept the claim of the New Testament. Meaning, without the New Testament claim, uh, this would have no connection to Jesus. And so, mm. it basically, comes down to not so much what the Hebrew Scriptures say. It's basically, you know, uh, the New Testament says so, and that's the end of it. Hmm. It's Uh, true because we say so. Exactly. Another case of that. The next one on the list is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, which says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What a great passage that is. And the corresponding verse, according to the list in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay, then it even has a little cross-reference back to that uh, verse in Isaiah. The uh, prophecy uh, apparently that is uh, uh, fulfilled, according to the list, is his resurrection predicted Really? Okay. Michael. <laughs> you, see, you seem incredulous. Oh, no, uh, I thought it would be something a bit more specific, but I, that's, um, that's a little bit abstract for my mind. What do you make of it? Well, <clears throat> again, the, the list maker here is asserting that what you have in the book of Isaiah is a prediction that the Messiah would be resurrected, and that's exactly what they claim happened to Jesus. Um, the problem here is that this is not a messianic prophecy. Um, even I checked my open Bible, which is very hyperactive in awarding a, <laughs> uh, a prophecy start to almost every verse in the Bible. Even that uh, Christian text does not give this a star indicating it's a messianic prophecy. And the reason is very simple, because when you read this passage, again in context, it's not speaking about the Messiah. It's a general uh, description of a future resurrection, not of an individual. It's not speaking about the resurrection of a particular individual. It's speaking about a general resurrection mm. that will take place in the future. And you see this very clearly when the passage speaks about the tears of all faces and the removing the shame of his nation. It's not dealing with what's going to happen to a particular person. And uh, it's really speaking about a new reality that will be uh, coming into pass for God's people, uh, there are different ways in which it's understood because the Hebrew doesn't say to put an end to death, which is the Hebrew word mavet, mavet, but it speaks about um, hamavet, the death. And some people take this to refer to uh, specific kinds of death. So um, some people understand this passage to say that the kind of death that will be put an end to in terms of this prediction is death through war, for example. But it's not uh, saying that people will no longer die. Um, so that's not so clear. Why does it speak about the death rather than death in general? Um, but th- this is basically something which is taught throughout the Bible, that in the um, future, not clear exactly when, but it'll take place sometime after the Messianic age begins, there will be a resurrection of the dead. 
And I often joke not just the dead, but the Jefferson Airplane as well. So, <laughs> and, and so this is a, a general teaching we find uh, in several places in the Bible that, you know, the dead will come back to life. What, what is, that's clear in the Bible. Now, what's not clear is who exactly that will apply to, meaning is it referring mm-hmm. to all humanity? Is it referring to only righteous people? It's not 100% clear. Um, what the entrance requirements will be to the resurrection, but it's clear that it's referring to uh, you know a, a group, a massive group of people. Mm. And the other thing is, which is not discussed in scripture, is what happens after that. Meaning that when the dead come back to life, do they stay that way forever and ever? Meaning, are they are they now going to be living yeah. forever in a body? Um, will they come back to life and then, as a living body, die once again? Um, you know, it's, this it's it leaves a lot of room for speculation because uh, compared, I mean, particularly compared to the Christian tradition, the Christian tr- tradition has a uh, an enormous focus on such themes and 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 quite an elaborate explanation on many such topics. But in the Tanakh, there really is very little information in comparison, and it leads me to believe that hey. We're on a need-to-know basis, and right now we don't need to know. Exactly. I think that if it was very important, you know, for example, it was important for us to know how to build a holy temple. So God provided plenty Mm. of instructions for that, you know, exactly how to construct the garments of the high priest, you know, exactly what to do, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, observing the, the Torah. God instructed us in the things we need to know. And it wasn't so important for us to know exactly how hot it's going to be in hell. What temperature will it be? <laughs> so, you know, th- these questions are left uh, really open. Um, and they're very, very uh, hotly disputed within rabbinic tradition, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the church. I mean, there's a huge uh, debate between no less great figures than Maimonides and Nachmanides. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, historically, it's, been, it's always been a um, uh, di- differing views and hotly debated views. Yeah, and, but you wouldn't have these debates if the scripture was clear. That's right. So it is left pretty vague. But what is clear is that there will be a general resurrection in the future, and that's what this passage is speaking about. And, uh, you know. and it's interesting because, I mean, we're getting off the topic a little bit, but it's interesting because people say, well, why aren't we informed? Why don't we have the specifics? Uh, you know, why, why don't we need to know? And I... And I think of my boys, I, boy, I've got great boys. I'm so blessed with my boys. And they obey me. They, they, they do what dad tells them to do, not because of any promise of reward that they think they'll get if they do it, but because they understand that if dad tells them to do something, well, dad needs to be obeyed and we just do it and we do it because we love dad and we like to please him. I, it, it would be different if, if, uh, if they only behave themselves or were obedient to me because of, of uh, the promise of a... Um, of a reward, of a reward later on, it it, it puts a different uh, a feel on it altogether, and and it's a it's a very rewarding thing to have such obedient sons who who do what they are told out of love for their father. Exactly, and you know the rabbis made such a focus on this um, because we do know that the, it, it, not just from what scripture speaks about. Um, but it just it's logical that if we're obedient, you know, we will be blessed, and if we're not obedient, we're not going to be blessed. But the rabbis were so insistent that we don't serve the Almighty out of an expectation for reward that mm. we should we shouldn't serve Hashem for the sake of getting a reward. We should just do it for the for the love of God. 
and for the uh, just because for the fact that he gave us instruction. Yes. I mean, you know, that's and, that's why we should do it. And he says, by the way, in the scriptures that his instructions are for our benefit. So right. we're not just uh, serving God because he needs our service. Whatever God can, instructs us to do is for our benefit anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd imagine both in this world and in the next world, meaning that it will lead to a blessed life in this world, and it'll ultimately lead to uh, a blessed existence in the world to come. But the focus is taken off. It's not The Bible does not uh, emphasize the idea of what exactly the reward's going to be and how... You know, it doesn't it doesn't focus on this because it mm. doesn't want. As, I think, as you said, it doesn't want that to be our focus. Mm. Our focus should be basically trying to obey God simply because He's God. And He's our Father, and He gave us instruction. What more? Does, what more do we need? Well, and part that? of it, by the way, when you think about it, is that children obey parents. Um, it's it's not simply because they're parents. There's something about parents that really demands obedience, which is gratitude, meaning that parents give their children everything. Parents Mm. bring the children into existence. Parents nurture and sustain the children. Parents would walk through fire for their children. Mm. And Mm. so out of gratitude for everything uh, parents have done for their children, it just, it's it's reasonable that, you know, when the parents say, can you please take out the garbage? (laughs) Mm. Um, You know, or just brush your teeth, please, or do your homework. (laughs) Uh, They will obey. That's right. That's great. Now, uh, speaking of the resurrection, the next one follows in that theme. It is Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, which says, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. The corresponding verse, according to the list in the New Testament, John 11, verse 43 to 44. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, uh, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So the... Uh, prophecy that is fulfilled according to the list is messiah's power of resurrection predicted you know this reminds me of you know when you go to the um circus or you go to one of these amusement parks and you look in one of these mirrors and they're all distorted Mm -hmm. um this is a distorted way of looking at this passage um because the passage is not in any way shape or form forecasting or predicting the ability of the Messiah to resurrect people. Um, That's simply not what's being spoken about in this passage. Mm. It's speaking again about the future where there'll be a general resurrection of the dead, um, either for all of humanity or for the righteous in humanity. Um, Again, it speaks about this in Daniel chapter 12. But there's nothing here about a prediction about some special power that the Messiah will have. Um, that's simply a distortion of what's really going on in this passage. Mm. All right, moving on. Uh, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a future, a, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Uh, The corresponding verse, according to the list, is Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the cheap cornerstone. Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, my word. And uh, the, the messianic uh, prophecy that is fulfilled is that the Messiah is the precious cornerstone. Okay. I guess that's the claim of, I guess this, uh, now this is Peter, I suppose, if I remember correctly, in, in, in the book of Acts. Uh, and this is his claim, uh, according to the writer of the book of Acts. Uh, but what is Isaiah saying? Well, first of all, Isaiah says nothing about precious stone. That's that's a, a um, that's somehow an assertion here that just doesn't spoken about by Isaiah. And the truth is, it's not entirely clear what this passage refers to. Um, and the reason we know that it's not clear is that there are so many different uh, interpretations that are offered. Some uh, commentaries say it is referring to the coming Messiah, the Messiah who will come in the future. Mm-hmm. But others say, it's, no, it's referring to King Hezekiah, which would be probably the simplest um, explanation. Some even say it may be referring to the king Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And um, some actually say, and I found this interpretation uh, fascinating, that it's referring to the actual stone that will be the cornerstone of the future holy temple. I mean, that, why not? That, yeah, I mean, it speaks about a cornerstone, and why not just assume it's talking about a cornerstone? Um, but it's not really clear what this is referring to. It's sort of um, a bit vague. And I would say that uh, even if we're to say that it is speaking about the Messiah, it would just be one of those pass- passages um, if the Bible said, one day the Messiah will come, uh, that's the best that you'd get out of this passage. Um, right. it, does, okay. it doesn't quite come out and say that. Um, you'd have to sort of stretch this and make a, a number of assumptions to say it's referring to the Messiah. But it wouldn't be an absurd interpretation. But at the end of the day, all it would be speaking about is the Messiah would come, but there's no proof that it refers to Jesus. Again, that would simply be an assertion that Christianity makes, that the Hebrew Scriptures pr- uh, predict the Messiah is going to come, and we're saying it was Jesus. But again, there's, there's no proof that it, it's referring mm. to Jesus. Fair enough. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 is the next one. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. The corresponding verse uh, in the New Testament, according to the list, is Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 to 9. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and teach, uh, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is hypocritical obedience to his word. What's that? What's this got to do with a messianic? Is this a messianic prophecy? According, <laughs> I'm a bit confused. Well, I'm scratching right. my head as well. Uh, I don't know what. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's hard even to formulate how this would be a messianic prophecy. What's really peculiar is that they seem to be saying that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy by simply quoting it. Um, mm. You know, I've quoted this passage in Isaiah many times. Um, mm. It's actually one of the most famous 
um, passages you'll find in a lot of Jewish inspirational literature where, you know, we don't want to live like this, where we're just obeying God's commandments on automatic pilot, doing it, uh, you know, by rote. By rote. Um, so, does it mean that a person fulfills this prophecy because they quoted the words of Isaiah? It's sort of peculiar. Um, it's hard to understand why anyone or how anyone could take this passage in Isaiah as a messianic prophecy that somehow it's giving you some way in which the Messiah can be identified. Um, not even, by the way, my hyperactive open Bible uh, considers this to be a messianic prophecy, and my mm. new, new King James Version study Bible does not take it as a messianic prophecy. And I'm, I'm okay with that. It, it seems that it's, it's almost impossible to make a, a reasonable case that this is... I mean, the writer of Matthew uh, makes out that Jesus quoted this verse, but it doesn't make it a prophecy, nor does it make it a prophecy fulfilled. That's a bit silly. We're going to move on. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 20... We're just... Boy, we're flying along, aren't we? Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish... And the understanding of the prudent man, uh, men shall be hidden. Corresponding verse according to the list. Oh, my word. This is so long. This is um, <laughs> First Corinthians. Should I read all of this? This is First Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. I'm not going to read all of that. I'm just going to say that the uh, messianic prophecy uh, fulfilled according to the list is the wise are confounded by the word. Uh, okay, so this is basically a continuation of the of the just the previous verse, and so it's also not a messianic prophecy. It's not considered to be a messianic prophecy by you know many of the Christian study Bibles that I've consulted, um, and it's hard to even construe how this can be understood as a messianic prophecy. Um, Isaiah is not even speaking about uh, wise being confounded by the word. Um, that somehow he manufactures, um, but it could be understood in a number of ways. You could say that what Isaiah is saying here is that at this time, he was obviously, the, the major job of, of the prophets was to rebuke the people, and Isaiah in the previous verse was rebuking the people for practicing God's commandments by rote. Mm -hmm. And he could be saying at this point that um, the wise will be confounded in the sense that they'll lose some of their wisdom. Um, but he's speaking about the people living at his time. Isaiah here is not saying that this is something that's going to be taking place at a specific time in history. It, it's, a, it's a criticism of the people living at his time. Um, one of the reasons why, and this is a principle of the canonization of the Hebrew Bible, you know, we had over a million prophets. Um, the rabbis say that there weren't only a few dozen prophets that we had. We had over a million prophets, but not every one of them had their words preserved in the scriptures. The only prophets that were preserved in the scriptures were prophets whose message really was not only uh, for that time, but had universal application. And so this is a criticism that could be applied to any generation where people were not acting as wisely as they should and where people were following the Torah by automatic pilot, by rote. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not speaking about anyone confounded by the word, whatever that would mean anyway. I think mm -hmm. a simpler way of reading it 
is not that the wise people will lose their wisdom, but it's saying that there'll be a concealment of the wisdom of the wise, meaning the wisdom of the wise will be concealed from whom? From those very people spoken of in verse 13 who observed the Torah by habit, meaning the wise were there to uh, rectify uh, and to help correct the improper behavior of people. And they were the people that were teaching. They were trying to help people not practice the Torah by rote. And we're told here that, unfortunately, their wisdom will not be accessed. It will be concealed from people, unfortunately. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's no evidence that, uh, in any event, this passage has anything to do with Jesus. Again, it would just simply be an assertion of the Christian Bible. Fair enough. Moving on, Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Corresponding verse according to the list in the New Testament, Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. The messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list, a refuge, a man shall be a hiding place. It sounds like something I did when I was a kid, when we played hide and go seek. Uh, yeah. it's, it's almost impossible to see how this passage in Isaiah uh, is construed as a messianic prophecy or how it's even connected to this um, speech that Yeshua makes in Matthew. Maybe, uh, maybe it's because uh, I, I, you know, I'm just trying to put it together and find the quote-unquote connection because that's really what uh, Carmen looks for. And, I, and I'm thinking that perhaps the, the, hen, the, the, the chicks hide uh, under the hen's wings. Therefore, there's some hiding going on. Uh, other than that, I'm not too sure what's, going, what's happening here. Well, it's interesting that, that, again, my hyperactive open Bible does not classify this as a messianic prophecy. And uh, I'm in agreement with them. Because it's not a messianic prophecy. Um, virtual, virtually all Jewish commentaries see this as a passage about King Chizkiyahu, Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they understand this to mean that either uh, Hezekiah will be a kind of king that will protect us from the winds and downpour, which obviously doesn't mean he's going to hold you know, a, a, a huge umbrella over the Jewish people. The winds and the downpour are metaphors here for the wicked. So that it's describing how this king, um, and in the context of the book of Isaiah here, Chizkiyahu, will be someone who will protect us from the wicked. Um, or, look, it could refer to, if we insist, not just Chizkiyahu, but any righteous king, or really even any righteous person. Some commentaries take this to mean not that, the, uh, that this person will protect others from the downpour of the wicked, but that this person himself will hide from the wicked in order to get away from the wicked himself. Um, So it's not exactly clear how this is to be understood, but it's certainly not to be seen as a messianic prophecy. And there's no proof that it was fulfilled by Jesus, meaning there's no proof that Jesus um, was able to protect anyone from the wicked. Um, uh, So it's just a, a very, very... Uh, tenuous connection um, to a passage that, again, 
really, there's no reason to understand it as a messianic prophecy. And again, many Christian commentaries don't. This reminds me a little bit of uh, <laughs> the thing that just popped into my mind was Tevier in the in Fiddler on the Roof, where he where he, where he declares about about the Tanakh that somewhere it says something about a chicken. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I and, do. And I don't know that there is anywhere in the Tanakh that refers to a chicken, but at least Jesus comes to the rescue in the New Testament. I think he makes mention of uh, a chicken a couple of times. He makes mention of a rooster, and here he makes mention of a hen. So there you go, Tebier. Maybe Tebier is a prophet. Who knows? <laughs> so <laughs> moving on. Now, the next one, uh, I'm going to roll all these together. <laughs> it's funny how Carmen's divided these up. This is really good. Uh, it's Isaiah chapter 35, um, verse... Well, no, I'll tell you what, let's do the first one. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. We'll do that by itself. It says, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Corresponding verse, according to the list in the New Testament, is Matthew 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I'm going to say Yeshua. It's just so ridiculous in the English, isn't it? Uh, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, I'm not too sure what the connection is there, but according to the list, uh, oh, I see, okay, the, the, the messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled is that he will come and save you, Michael. This is embarrassing, this one. Uh, <laughs> you know, it really is. This is, a, this is frightening. Um, it's frightening really because, you know, just reading the, the verse makes yeah. it so clear that it has absolutely nothing to do with Matthew chapter 1. Um, first of all, when you read chapter 35 here, um, it, it comes right out and it, it tells you that it's speaking about the Lord, it's speaking about God, it's not speaking about the Messiah. So when it says he will come and save you, it's, it's again very, very clearly not referring to the Messiah. It tells you right in the passage that it's speaking mm. about God. But more importantly, um, you know, it speaks about... Um, the idea, what does it mean to come and save you? And, you know, I think we discussed a, a week or two ago that this word uh, save or salvation mm. is a word that is common both to Judaism and Christianity. We have it on our vocabulary lists, but the definition is very, very different. Um, Matthew really defines the word Yeshua here in a very Christian way, that saving salvation has to do with your sins, with your spiritual uh, uncleanliness that the Messiah they see is someone who comes to uh, redeem people from their sins. And uh, if we just take a look at the way the word Savior or salvation is used in the Hebrew Bible, um, it doesn't refer to being rescued from your sins. It refers specifically to people or individuals who are in physical or political mm. danger, and God saves them. Um, you see this just in the passage itself here, um, where it says, Speak to those who are fear-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so even the, the language here is very clearly not speaking about you know, people who are perishing in their sin, but people who are in danger, people who uh, you know, need to be uh, rescued from some uh, severe danger. And that's what it says, God's going to come and save you. Um, so th th just the application here is just so off base. 
um, in, in several ways. And then finally, um, aside from interpreting this wrong, uh, even if we're to grant them their, the interpretation, this improper interpretation, this, again, there's no proof that Jesus did this. First of all, it's very clear Jesus did not rescue anyone physically or politically. That's for sure. But there's also no proof that he rescued anyone spiritually, meaning that it's an assertion that's made that Jesus died for your sins. But you can't know that. You can't see that. Um, it's one of the things that I think we described earlier, that the the picture of the Messiah in the Jewish scriptures is can be empirically validated, meaning that the, the way the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of the Tanakh, is described is... Uh, an individual that you can empirically verify whether or not he fulfilled the prophecies. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that someone comes to die for your sins cannot be empirically verified. You've got to take it on faith. And that's why Christians always speak about, do you believe in Jesus? Because you can only believe in something that you can't know empirically. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, you never find any reference to believing in the Messiah. It would be absurd. It would be like saying, I believe that uh, Barack Obama is the president of the United States. No one has to believe that. It's just very obvious. He won the election. Mm-hmm. He's sitting in the White House. It's not an article of faith. It's something that you can know empirically. And so because the messianic character, the messianic personality of the Hebrew Bible is empirically uh, verifiable. You can actually see whether or not someone fulfilled the, the true messianic prophecies like we read last time, Isaiah chapter 11. You can actually see if there's world peace. You can see if there's universal disarmament. You can see if the exiles have been returned to the land of Israel. You can see if the temple has been rebuilt. That's why in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 37 it says then the nations will know Right when they see the temple's been rebuilt, everything that applies to the success of the Hebrew of the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, you can actually see with your eyes. So, because you can see it, there's no reason the Bible will speak about believing in the Messiah. You only have to believe in something that you can't know uh, empirically. And mm. the Christian idea that the Messiah comes to die for your sins. They have to speak about it in terms of belief because there's no way of knowing whether his death was able to really cleanse you of your sins. That's something you have to accept on faith. Fair enough. Isaiah chapter 35. Now, this is, okay, so the next four we're going to roll all together. This is Isaiah chapter 35 and 36. It says, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Now, the uh, corresponding verses, there's obviously a whole lot of verses that um, uh, are listed on this, um, uh, the new revised standard version of Jesus healing the blind, healing the deaf, healing the, uh, the lame and healing the dumb. I don't think I need to read them all out. But what, what is happening in Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 to 6? Well, this actually is a messianic prophecy. Uh, <laughs> however, it's it's not a prophecy about the person of the Messiah, and it's very very critical to remember that you have really two kinds of messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures. The by the vast majority are not about the person of the Messiah. For example, um, if you read Isaiah chapter 2, all you really see there is a description of a utopian 
world, the kind of um, uh, utopian world that will come about in the messianic age. And the vast majority of messianic prophecy simply describe a transformed world, a utopian world, but they don't mention any particular individual. So this is a passage um, which is speaking about the kind of changes that will uh, exist in the messianic age, but there's nothing here about the person of the Messiah. And it's very clear, for example, if you read verse 10 in chapter 35, that it's, re- it's referring here to the, um, really to the miracles that will take place with the redemption of Israel. Verse 10, for example, says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. So it's speaking really, really here about the kind of transformed national existence that will take place um, when the Jewish people have returned to their homeland and have been restored uh, in the Messianic Age. Obviously, this has not happened yet. Um, it's not referring here, this is very critical to understand, to an individual who will be able to affect the sight and the hearing of, um, of individuals. It's referring here to uh, basically an entire transformation of the um, reality of the Jewish people. Most mm-hmm. understand this, by the way, as really referring not to physical blindness and physical lameness, but really in a more spiritual or symbolic way, that with the advent of the Messianic Age, we're going to all pay attention to God and uh, to, to really listening to those who convey God's teachings. We see this as a very, very common theme throughout the Bible, that we're told that in the um, Messianic future, the people of Israel will not just be restored physically to the land, but will be restored spiritually. That Isaiah, For example, Ezekiel chapters 11 and 36 speak about God transforming our hearts so that we'll be obedient to the Torah. And mm-hmm. this is a, a very common theme. So the exile of the Jewish people was always a time where we were considered, and Isaiah speaks about the nation of Israel being blind. Uh, not speaking about, you know, every Jew, you know, that just can't see through their eyes. It's really speaking about, you know, we weren't able to get it. We didn't, you know, it's interesting that when we say, I see what you mean, it doesn't refer to something you see with your eyes. It means to understand. And mm-hmm. so when it speaks about healing the blind uh, and healing those who are crippled and lame, it's really saying that the Jewish people will be restored um, to the kind of people they're supposed to be. We're going to be mm. able to really fully pay attention to God, to, to those who teach God's teachings. Mm. And that wasn't the case. When we were in exile, we were mute, we were limping. We weren't able to fully sing praises to God. And so these verses here are speaking about really uh, a transformation spiritually of the Jewish people. Just as I should point out that the way that the Gospels um, use these uh, ideas is to make the claim that the miracles that Jesus allegedly performed would be proof that he was the Messiah. I mean, that the, 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 one of the major focuses in the Gospels is to highlight the miracles of Jesus, the turning the water into wine and multiplying mm-hmm. the loaves and multiplying the fish and walking on water and healing people. I mean, it's, the Gospels, in, in some way, is not just a catalog of 
passages that were fulfilled by Jesus in terms of prophecy, but there's this meta theme of the miracles that Jesus allegedly fulfilled, and the the subtext would be that who else would be able to do these miracles except for the Messiah? Um, the problem here is that it's not true, meaning that we know that you know it's interesting that um, I often give a, a talk at a Christian seminary. Um, uh, in their in their uh, world religions class about Judaism, and I take questions at the end. I'm doing this for years, and the first question I'm always asked is, "Why don't Jews believe that Jesus was the Messiah?" And I simply outline for them what the Bible actually teaches about the Messiah, and I say, "Well, this hasn't happened yet. We haven't really seen this messianic age come about." And so every year, in response to my, my, uh, my, my answer to them, they say, well, what about all the miracles that Jesus did? I mean, they're willing to admit that he didn't bring about universal peace, he didn't bring about a universal recognition of God, he didn't bring about the return of the exiles to the land of Israel, he didn't bring about the rebuilding of the temple, he didn't really do anything the Messiah was supposed to do, but they come back always with this question what about all the miracles that he did? And I ask them, um, I always say a Jew answers a question with a question. Uh, I ask them, well, how many times does the scriptures tell us clearly that we'll be able to recognize the Messiah through the miracles that he will do? And most of them can't give me any place in the Bible where it clearly says that one of the ways we'll be able to recognize the Messiah is through the miracles that he will do. And I ask them, why not? Meaning, why doesn't the Bible ever clearly tell us that this is one of the ways in which it'll be clear who the Messiah is. And I say, the reason is because one of the things we know clearly in the Bible, in the scriptures, is that miracles don't really prove anything. It doesn't prove that you're a good guy, for example. We know that in Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate many of the miracles that Moses performed. And in Deuteronomy 13, we're told that false prophets will be able to do incredible supernatural miracles. And it doesn't prove that you're a true prophet that you can do a miracle. Even false prophets can do miracles. And then I take mm. the, the seminary students to their own Bible, to Matthew 24, verse 24, where it predicts that false messiahs will be able to do incredible supernatural miracles. And so if we're told that false messiahs can perform miracles, then it's very clear that you can't know who the Messiah is because they perform miracles, meaning that would be the one thing that would not be helpful. Um, so here we have basically in this passage um, a description of what the uh, transformation will be like for the nation of Israel. Uh, it, it's not saying that you know before this happens, you know Jews were not able to walk literally, physically, or they couldn't see physically. It's saying that mm. our, 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 really our, our unfortunate situation, our unfortunate state of being during our exile, where we were crippled in many ways spiritually, will be resolved. We're going to be restored to health spiritually. And this simply is a messianic prophecy that we're waiting to happen. Hasn't happened mm -hmm. yet. So this would actually prove that, you know, whoever the Messiah is, he hasn't come yet. 
that seems like a great place to leave it. We're going to be kicking off next week from Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, so how about that? We, we got through Isaiah chapter that we got through the 20s and the 30s. We're going to be in the 40s uh, in the next program. Thank you, Rabbi Michael Skobak, for coming back on the program. Such a pleasure again with you, Jono. Just a reminder to everybody, I'll put a link on, on this post here, but you are presenting the Counter-Missionary Survival Seminar, which you uh, which you do a few times a year, you said. Uh, it kicks off January 27 for those in the Toronto area. The website, of course, is JewsForJudaism.ca. By the way, if someone is not in the Toronto area, um, we have not yet begun live streaming these seminars. Uh, they are recorded. They're all available at our YouTube channel. So all 12 lectures can be uh, viewed right now. <laughs> you don't have to wait. Brilliant. You don't have to wait. But if you want to see Rabbi Michael Skobek do a live gig, well, you've got to go and see him live. You've got to go to Toronto. But if, you, if you're happy to watch it on YouTube, it's there on the YouTube channel. You can get to the YouTube channel from the website, JewsForJudaism.ca. Or if you just go to YouTube and put in, what, if you just put in Jews for Judaism, you'll you'll be there, right? Oh, maybe. <laughs> I'll find a link. I'll find a link and I'll put it on this post. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Oh,